any actors of yours in your movies ever been able to give you their input on what kind of car to use or how to use it? I get that uh, all too often. Mike, the Mike, question is, do you really want to know, do we ever listen to them? <laughs> Welcome, it's a new edition of the award-winning Talking About Cars, where it's all about everybody has a car story, from celebrities to car personalities and more. I'm Randy Cardoon, and this week, it's the and more. We're going to do something a little different. Usually, I get to talk with people, sometimes celebrities, about their car stories, but this time, I attended the media opening for the new Hollywood Dream Cars exhibit at the Peterson Museum on the Miracle Mile here in Los Angeles. And it was attended by many Hollywood producers and those responsible for car placement in movies, car designers as well, who participated in a group discussion. Now, this is a discussion that was done before that select group of media at the opening. And now, thanks to the Peterson Museum, you get to hear the fascinating conversation as well. How Doc Brown's car turned out to be a DeLorean instead of a refrigerator? Included in the panel is Blade Runner 2049 art director George Hall, film transportation director Josh Hancock from the Austin Powers movies, John Wick 3, and the upcoming Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Porsche designer and many fast cars in the movie business, Howard Belker, Dennis McCarthy from the Fast and Furious movies, Michael Sheff from Knight Rider, Avatar, and Spider-Man, and Bob Yale, who wrote Back to the Future, as well as having to do with many other movies that featured cars. And your panel discussion MC, Scott Mance. So let's begin with Bob Gale, who told those assembled about a new exhibit which features cars from Batman, Back to the Future, iRobot, Terminator, Blade Runner 2049, and much, much more. Sometimes you see a movie car by itself or with two or three other cars. But when you see this exhibit, you're going to see, your head's going to explode because there's so many of them. And every, you, you're looking at one out, out the corner of your eye, you're saying, oh my God, that's, oh, did they really have that car here? Whoa. And you just keep, every corner you turn, there's just something else that's great. And the cars look fantastic. They are displayed as we expect from the Peterson with the love and care uh, that and lighting. It's just, if you love cars, if you love movies, if you love movie cars, it just all comes together this time. It's just absolutely mind-boggling. It really is. I mean, I was totally geeking out downstairs, and I, I say that proudly, really, really proudly. Michael, you know, what was the first time you saw a film, TV show, where the vehicle, where the car knocked your socks off? When I was growing up, I remember I was really limited on TV time because my parents were, weren't so convinced it was a good idea. And I remember seeing um, this silly show uh, called Man From U.N.C.L.E. He had a car once in a while and it looked so cool. It was years before I knew what that car was. And then I'm looking down the list of cars for this exhibit and it's there. And I remember seeing, of course, the Batmobile and thinking, it occurred to me, oh, someone had to build that for this show. That's a pretty good job, right? I never dreamed uh, when I grew up, more or less, 
uh, that I would ever have a hand in any of that stuff. You know, I came down to school to be a car designer here in Pasadena at Art Center, and I had no idea I would ever work in TV or movies or be a part of that. But that impression that that stuff leaves you, when you're young and you have an open mind, and you're not like so cool that you're not impressed, uh, it leaves a big mark, right? Really, really does. Sure, yeah. sure. How about for you, Dennis? Yeah, early on, I would say, uh, you know, what really uh, comes to mind is the Dukes of Hazard. You know, I think I was probably in the seventh grade at that point, and just, uh, you know, seeing that charger flying through the air was like one of the coolest things ever, and kind of went right along with the fall guy. I mean, you know, just all those 70s shows that had cars in them were, were great. And then, uh, you know, going back to films, I mean, some of my favorite early films would have been uh, the Gumball Rally, you know, yeah. for instance. Oh, was yeah, just, great. I know, I think you guys, the, some of those cars were here. The last time I was here, anyway, they were here, but that was you know, one of my all-time favorites. And it's just, uh, I've always been drawn to movie cars, and it was really just something that I, you know, never really thought that I would actually end up in this business, and uh, I really did by chance. But, uh, you know, I feel really lucky today to get to play with all this stuff. I mean, you know, we build cars, we go out, we test them, we uh, push them till, till they break, and, uh, you know, <laughs> then hopefully show up on, uh, you know, on set with the perfect product. So, uh, yeah, it's one of the greatest jobs ever if you like movie cars. How about for you? I, I, I love that everyone has a different thing that inspired them. Um, well, when I sort of recall, I think it was George Barris's uh, Batmobile. Uh -huh. And I remember as a kid having that as a model, and I thought, wow, that is just so cool. And I got to meet George several times, uh, you know, once you're part of that small group of uh, Batmobile designer, a very small group. Um, so you got to hang out with him and sit in the car, and he would tell you stories. So it was sort of, you know, coming full circle on that. So um, I was never, not so much like you guys, maybe into the, the, the tuner cars or everything. I, I, since I also went to Art Center and studied automotive design, I was more in the, the essence of designing, creating something from ground up. And then later I had the opportunity to get into film and like you, all of a sudden my world just exploded uh, with the possibilities, you know, that you have in film. Um, unlike automotive design was very limited, very, you know, corporate and uh, sort of never looked back. I mean, then you're just a 10 year old dreaming every day and coming up with the coolest things. You know, by the way, that's now two people who've mentioned the original Batmobile. That's downstairs. So that's very, very cool. How about for you? I, I don't know, we're talking about George Barris a lot, but for me, it was very common. The monster car was like, I, I would die <laughs> to see that car. And then Grandpa had a coffin that he drove, if you remember that. And then the Beverly Hillbillies cool. drove around in that car. But I was also fascinated with cars so young that when Chrysler introduced new cars, when Mr. Drysdale would drive up on a 300 convertible, I was like, that's a new 300 convertible. My father would go, okay, nice, great. You wanna play football? So <laughs> it, it, it really had a huge impact on me in both ways. There are these very custom cars, but to get to see the new stuff and then to come here and drive down the same roads, I would recognize the, the locations when I first got here like crazy if you watch those shows. Sure, yeah, yeah. George, awesome. how about you? Well, for me, um, Maybe you can tell by my shirt. If, you, if you're a super nerd like I am, this is from the original Blade Runner, the kind of replicant owl <laughs> that's in there. But when I saw that movie, I just, like, my brain exploded. The, the spinners, the flying cars at you know, Harrison Ford, with, you know, um, in this dystopian world. 
And it was, you know, the environments, the cars, the invention, all that coming together that just made me just, you know, I, it, it, the, it completely changed my world. I thought, of course, well, how do I get to do this? And, but I, you know, I grew up in Ohio and completely away from Hollywood. And I saw that these were industrial designers that, you know, did this type of work. So I went to like a state school and I was drawing vacuum cleaners and like really <laughs> boring stuff. And I thought, well, that's never going to be reality. But eventually I got, you know, I just got this opportunity to go to, um, to learn, uh, learn design. And I learned it through, I had some internships at like Chrysler and Ford. And the, that experience of like, you know, um, they, they would pull, they would make a full size chassis on the wall and you'd be handed this roll of tape and you'd have to make a car with this flexible tape. And this experience of learning, like, well, if I make the tape go this way, it looks like a Porsche. And if I make it go that way, it looks like a Hyundai. Yeah, and yeah. it's just with tape. And it's just those broad elements of raw design that, that made me, um, that blew my mind too. And then all this stuff coming together and, you know, I'll, I'll just jump right to working in the movie industry and right to uh, Blade Runner 2049. It was like this full circle that I was just super related. I, I want to ask why, why on the subject of Blade Runner, because uh, the original film, I was, I was 13 when I saw the original movie. I, I didn't get it. But then I moved out here in 91. I saw the final cut. I got it. Uh, but in regards to Blade Runner 2049, I mean, Denis Villeneuve, I mean, that movie, uh, 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 Roger Deakins, I mean, that movie oh, yeah. is as good as its predecessor. And that is a very, very bold statement. But how do you keep the design of something like The Spinner Evolved 30 years from when the time of the original Blade Runner takes place, which, by the way, is in 2019, which is what we're in, um, hmm. but still look like a spinner. Well, the, the, the first thing you do is you look at all the work that was done by the predecessors, the, the, the amazing work of not only Sid Mead, but there was a beautiful work by the model makers. You know, they are, their job was to make those real. Those real. And, uh, you know, so just pour over all the reference, and then you analyze the qualities of, you know, these things are built to live in a dystopian world. And in the new 2049, it was even more apocalyptic, because you know, we're always, in stories, you're, you know, you're, in movie design, you're always trying to look for the story, how to design with a story, form follows function. And there it was like snow and hyper-pollution, and there was also, you know, the Deckard in that movie had, you know, set off this EMP bomb, so it was even more apocalyptic than the first movie. So we were, um, you know, we wanted to put all those things element. The director had keywords like brutalism and paramilitary, and you, you make this big stew and you try drawing sketches of one that's more, more crazy and more like a car and more paramilitary, or, and then you just try to figure out which recipe is gonna work the best. I wanted to say, because we have Harold here who did Minority Report, and George. George Blade Runner. <laughs> no, I saw your name tag. Um, and <laughs> in both those films, what's interesting is that you have the future in cars, but you also had to mix in some regular cars in the background mm -hmm. of a certain, and you know, those choices I found really interesting, like yeah. something sitting on the street. And you, you also had to deal with the fact, the filmmakers had to deal with the fact that the car goes up the side of a building and then we see it driving on a regular road. Well, uh, it's interesting. So for many, many months, we spent uh, designing the future autonomous car. And um, it was logical to us that we're not going to be driving anymore individually, that uh, 
will be all controlled by system, but yet uh, the, let's say, richer people, they get to drive in their own little pods, so to speak, and that is an extension of their living room. That's why Tom Cruise crawled out of the car right into his living room. And it was uh, only those vehicles. Everything else, you know, was going to be uh, not really shot or in the movie until two weeks before Christmas. And they go, well, actually, he has to leave town. And he can't do that on a vehicle that is maglev because out of, that only works within uh, Washington, D.C. So literally, that red Lexus was designed and modeled in two weeks. That's all the time we had because going backwards on the day it had to be on set building it for three months. And by the way, that car was electric. Uh, we had two weeks to design it and model it. So, That's amazing. you know, in, in, in some ways it's, it's raw. It's, you know, it is what it is. You know, you know, in design, you like to fiddle with it to the nth degree and correct this. There was no time for that. So, but, uh, but then with, with Lexus signing on, you know, that, that car uh, got a lot of press and uh, worked really well for me. <laughs> you know, uh, it, what's interesting is when you look at how the design of these cars have evolved, and then you look at the original design, or you hear about the original design. So, so Bob, Michael. Wait a minute, I got, I got to, I got to throw in a shout out for the movie that I saw when I was a kid. Yeah. That got me excited about custom cars that nobody's mentioned yet, and that was Goldfinger. Oh. oh, yeah. You know, Good one. Yeah, it's a big one. <laughs> James Bond's Aston Martin. I had the model kit. I mean, every kid wanted to have that car. And oftentimes people say to me, why is it do you think that the Back to the Future DeLorean is so iconic, so well recognized? And I always use the James Bond movies as an example. Bond got different cars in his different movies. And I think that if he had always had that Aston Martin through all, you know, 25 million James Bond movies, <laughs> we'd have, you know, people would be making, driving around in Aston Martins and replica Aston Martins and so forth. The DeLorean always looked the same in, in our Back to the Future movies and is always recognizable. So that's kind of just me throwing in some Bob has another story. But, but you know what's, what's really great is like, like the DeLorean, the time machine, it's interesting, more people refer to it as the time machine and as the DeLorean. But right. that there's a whole culture of, of people who have made their own custom time machines and it's, they made a documentary about it, it's really awesome. But, so, and, but the version, the time machine that they used in the actual making of Back to the Future in 1984 and 1985 is downstairs and you're gonna see it. But if had not been the DeLorean, what would we be looking at downstairs instead of a DeLorean? Right. If you stuck with your original first choice. Well, the, the, in, the, in the first two drafts of the script, uh, the time machine was built into a refrigerator. <laughs> and Doc Brown had to haul it around on the back of a pickup truck. And the whole nuclear power aspect of it was a major set piece in the early drafts where they actually had to harness the nuclear energy from an atomic test in Nevada to send Marty back to 1985. That turned out to be way too expensive to do. 
Steven, rem Steven Spielberg remembered it and used it in Indiana Jones 4. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Remember, remember Harrison Ford hides in the lead line refrigerator uh, on a nuclear test site. But one day Zemeckis came into the office and he's thinking about, you, you write it one way and then when you're actually making the movie, you have to start thinking of it, how am I actually gonna shoot this? And he started thinking about the logistics of hauling this refrigerator around on a pickup truck. And he said, Bob, wouldn't it make more sense that Doc Brown built this thing into a car so that we don't have to do all, I don't have to worry about how does he get it off the pickup truck? I said, yeah, that'd save us a lot of time and money. And, <laughs> and it's a good idea too. Um, and it just so happened, this was August 1984, uh, the John DeLorean trial was going on right then. And he said, what if it was a DeLorean? I mean, I'd love to take credit for the idea, but I can't. It's his, Bob Zemeckis came up with it, but I was smart enough to know a good idea when I heard one. So there really was no second choice. We just said, hey, it's gotta be a DeLorean. <laughs> but the little sidebar to that story is Universal had just gotten into product placement. Product placement is where companies pay uh, the studios and the production companies a certain amount of money to put their product in the movie. Sometimes it works nicely, sometimes it looks really stupid. Um, so one, one day I come into my office and there's a, a product placement people in there uh, and they say, Bob, we've got a deal here where we can guarantee the company $75,000, which in 1984 was a day and a half's worth of shooting, a lot of money. I said, okay, what's the deal? If you change the DeLorean to a Mustang, uh, Ford Motor Company will write you a check. And I just looked at him and I said, hey, Doc Brown doesn't drive a friggin' Mustang. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Michael, I want to ask uh, about, about Kit because, well, first of all, I mean, like I loved Knight Rider, but my, my movie car, uh, the first time I saw a movie where like I was all about the car, and I think a lot of people at that time had one because of the movie, was Smoking and the Bandit, the oh, yeah. Trans Am. So yeah, right? I mean, come on, that's a great Trans Am. So when you were <laughs> when you were working on uh, the original uh, kit, was there was there ever a chance that you would use that '70s version of the Trans Am, or was it always going to be the the newer version? Well. When they first approached me about the project, it was, they'd already chosen that new Firebird. It was new generation. It looked pretty fantastic. Yeah, really yeah. clean lines, right? A little bit of overhang, but you know, it's a pretty, pretty sleek shape. And it's held the test of time pretty well too, right? Nothing excessive there. It's clean, simple shapes. And they knew which side their bread was buttered on. And actually part of our brief was to redesign that front end and the interior in a way that Pontiac would say, yeah, okay, great, because we wanted to be able to get these cars for free from Pontiac, of course. Uh, maybe even, you know, maybe even the cash starts flowing the other way, right? So, <laughs> so when, we, when we built that car, we were really careful to try to keep the feeling of the design. You know, when you're designing, these guys have, have talked about how important it is for a car any vehicle, any prop, 
it, it plays a role in telling the story. And in Knight Rider, it, it kind of is a character itself, right? That car is. It talks. And so how does it help tell that story, right? Does it look like it was built by a crazy guy in his garage? Or does it look like it was built where cost is no object? And they had serious industrial designers who went to serious design schools. And they made this prototype where cost was no object. And that's, that's clearly the look that they wanted. But you know, from reality, you've got also some other factors like, how are we gonna build this thing in the time we have? And what's your budget again? And, and how much time is there really? So we didn't have a choice about which car to use. Glenn Larson, the guy who created that show, he, he was kind of a genius. He was a big genius when it came to television for sure. I mean, everything from Battlestar Galactica to Six Million Dollar Man, right? Night Rock. I mean, it's just unbelievable how many shows he created. Yeah. Uh, he created Quincy, Magnum PI, on and on. So when we got, uh, when we got that request, uh, I thought it was really smart. Let's use that car. It was on the cover of every car magazine before it came out because no one could wait to see what it is and everyone's got their hopes pinned on it. You know, maybe here's an American car that will really perform well, and it's gorgeous, and it's fast, and it's wonderful. So it was a smart decision. Yeah, yeah. Really smart. Here's uh, the example, if I make it in. Here's a great example of when product placement goes bad. That's when it goes really well. When it went bad is when they brought Knight Rider back and they put him in a Mustang. Yeah, I, I, Nobody I accepted it. <laughs> they were that great cars, crime. but it was a different show. Yeah, I got to design that one, by the way. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Harold. But the funny Ouch. thing was, they, they really bridged the uh, commercial because you watched the show and then they broke to commercial and after a while you didn't know anymore what is a commercial and what is the show, right? I did love the Mustang, by the way. It was great because it was beefier and the light was Good, good save right there. He's just saying that now. No, I did. Uh, but it, it is an example of when it goes bad, you know, and, and the, you know, another great example of when it goes bad is Thor. And there's a scene in Thor with all these Acuras and everybody's like, what are these Acuras doing here? Is there a sale? Did we break and go to commercial in the middle of the film? I mean, it made no sense. And they had all these great plans because Acura had done really well with another TV project. I can't remember what it is. And they were very hungry to get into Hollywood. So they had already prepared before Thor to do this big promotion with the dealers. And of course, it didn't work because it wasn't organic and it just was another bad example. Oh, wow. Yeah, Dennis, uh, you've worked on every Fast and Furious movie since Tokyo Drift. Correct. Yeah. And... You know, I, like, oh, through the early O's of the arts, they call them, you know, I was watching the Fast and Furious movies, and you had Tokyo Drift, and you had Fast and Furious, which brought back the two guys, uh, you know, Vin and Paul, and then Fast Five, completely rebooted, restarted, reinvigorated that series by, by making it into a heist movie on wheels. But these Fast and Furious movies keep getting bigger and bigger, the stunts, the... Uh, uh, action scenes get get more more incredible. Um, what what's your take on how to evolve the cars so that the previous film people left they were blown away and now you have to meet their expectations with the next one. Yeah, it's tricky. After doing that many, you start to run out of options. But somehow we always pull pull it off. Uh, you mentioned Fast Five. That was really one of my favorite ones because yeah. it was uh, it was kind of that middle one where it went big but there 
wasn't a lot of CG. The stunts were real. Like everything you saw in Fast Five was actually happening. I mean, the truck hitting the train, the train lifting off the tracks. That was 100% legit. I mean, the uh, dragging the, the safe through Rio, we, were, we actually shot that in Puerto Rico. But we had a safe, you know, tied up behind a couple of chargers. And it was amazing. I mean, in Puerto Rico, they really just let us do whatever we wanted. We said, can we take out the side of that bank? By all means, for sure. Um, they made a deal with us. We, we were running out of cars to buy, and we talked to uh, you know one of the government guys who was a cop and knew a guy. He said, you know, we have a whole you know yard full. Of, it was literally hundreds of cars, and uh, there was something something legal where we couldn't actually get the cars for nothing. We had to buy them for a dollar, but we had access to hundreds, and uh, it was literally an endless supply of cars. And I had one driver that would just every day get more cars to wreck, more cars to wreck. So when you watch that movie and you see that safe tearing out nine, ten cars, I mean. To get that one shot, we probably did that 10 times. So there was probably, you know, 60 cars, 70 cars destroyed. So it was just uh, an absolute nonstop fun, you know. So, uh, but the franchise is great. And back to your question, uh, you know, how do you keep it fresh? I mean, I, I always try to tie the cars into the characters. So, uh, you know, Josh just mentioned Acura, you know, so that was a car that came to mind for Mia this time with the, the new NSX. I thought, okay, that's a great car. Um, we were bringing in the new Supra. Dodge has always been a huge supporter of the franchise, and, uh, and it's very organic. I think that's really the key to product placement is that it has to be organic. You don't want to place the wrong car with the wrong person just because there's money behind it. And, you know, granted, it depends on the project. Sometimes you're forced to do that. But with the Fast and Furious, uh, being that it really is a car-driven franchise, we never do that. You know, I'll say 99% of the time we never do that. But... Uh, <laughs> But anyways, it's great. And like I said, you know, the hardest one is always getting uh, the next Dominic Toretto car. You know, it's, it's going to be a Charger, as you know, but what do we do? We've done so many Chargers. Uh, this time, though, we're going to have a, a car that comes. I don't want to spoil it, but it's going to be uh, European, kind of a Le Mans feel, but it's going to be something different that uh, we haven't done yet. And uh, I, I, at the moment, I really feel it's my, my favorite one to date. You know, we've had the off-road one. We've had the all-wheel drive ice charger. But this one's going to be really, really cool. I mean, we're still still in the early design stages, which, you know, like you mentioned, two weeks is kind of the normal. So I got a couple days left to finish that up. <laughs> but, uh, but no, it's going to be great. And like I said, my goal at the end is if, if you see the car on screen, the audience or the fans of the franchise will know, Oh my God, that's got to be that's got to be Tej's car, or that's got to be you know Roma's car. You know where you can kind of have an idea before the the door opens and the character gets out. You know whose car it is. So that's kind of what I strive for. Well, you know, Harold, I want to ask, like, like, when you have a, a a vehicle like the Batmobile, and you have the uh, 1989 Batman. This one's for you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> and when you have. Um, uh, the, the, the Batmobile, especially in the 1989 movie, which was just so badass. But even that evolved from movie to movie. Uh, but it still looked like the Batmobile. Like it, 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 the first vision you have is, yeah, that's the Batmobile. And then you take into the you take into details and the way that that it's changed from movie to film. So for yours, how did you decide what to evolve and what to keep? What was sacred and what was like? Let's go for it. It, it wasn't really my call. Uh, I was working for somebody. So you work for a production designer who sets the tone and the feeling. So Barbara Ling was a production designer on that Batman. She also did Batman Forever, where uh, my friend Tim Flattery designed the vehicle. And it was kind of, uh, I mean, she was big on LEDs, so uh, there was a lot of light going on. So for my movie, she said, you know, design something that goes back to the time when cars had big fenders. 
So um, it is a single-seater, it is glossy, and uh, that's about it. So I started designing, and the big thing was the opening, the, the reveal of the car on the turntable. So it had to come, you know, they played with the idea of having it look like a bullet, and then it morphed into the vehicle, which was then tossed out at some point. But uh, so it was just, I mean, if you look at the thing, it's 28 feet long. So I, I wasn't crazy about the fins in the back, so I kind of dismissed them. And Joel Schumacher, the director that made the call, I love fins. And if you know Joel Schumacher, you know how he said that. <laughs> and um, so fins it was. So, um, you know, and it just evolved a bit. The, the, the one thing I remember designing the Batmobile, uh, every day was like, oh my God, you know, I get to design little bat logos here, little bat logos there. And the funny story was, because we were doing it with 22-inch uh, rims, which didn't exist back then. So they were custom-made, and Michelin gave us the tires, and they were blank. So I said, okay, I even get to design the, the, um, the tread for it. So we had sort of a bat logo, and I sketched it out, and I said, you know, what would that look like if I drive on snow? And so I did a bunch of copies and I laid them out and they all looked like little flowers. I said, oh, <laughs> let's, let's adjust the spacing on those. So, but it was just, you know, I mean, it's the craziest thing to, to work on a, a, a Batmobile. So, and uh, yeah, so I, it, it's not necessarily my call as a designer to come up with something that I want. You are following the director, the production designer, and you sort of do what they want. At some point, they'll trust you, you know, they'll let you go, but it's their vision originally and that you put your take on it. Hey Josh, I want to ask, like, the, the collaborations that you've had with, with Scorsese, with Coppola, and with Tarantino, how, how are, do they, how, how are they different, you know, with, with regards to your contributions. Well, I want to speak to the fact that every movie is different. You know, we're talking about how the production designer is responsible. Sometimes the production designer isn't a car guy and doesn't want to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And in Mr. Scorsese's case, it was Casino and Dante Ferretti, who is an amazing guy, but he doesn't know the American market or cars. And so I originally came in to meet with Marty to do research, and he's so thorough. I met with FBI agents. I actually dug up wow. the guys that sold the gangsters the cars. I was in old age homes. These guys had the diamond rings, the whole thing. <laughs> and he wanted to know, how did they do it? You know, how did they grab these cars, use them in a crime, take them back. So we figured out how all that happened. And that's a big part of what he does. Um, if, in fact, the production designer is, is, you know, loves cars, the rest of it, he still may bring me in because I'm very current with the market. And so he's going to say to me, you know, does this look right right now? Then if we bring product placement in, I'm either going to protect the director or I'm going to make that good. And that gets very complicated because we want to bring the money into the production. We don't necessarily want to bring it into the studio. Austin Powers, I will tell you, the collaboration there was directly with Mike Myers and the director, Jay. And those guys wanted so much input on comedy. And if you look at those cars, they're funny. I mean, we had so much fun, probably the most fun I've ever had on any movies, creating these things and making them funny. And that was probably one of the best products 
movies I've ever done in that way and got it to be very creative. And, you know, we had Segway scooters. They built a Segway scooter for Dr. Evil and Mini-Me. And two weeks out, some postal carrier in Atlanta wrecked on a Segway scooter so they wouldn't give them to us. So we created these three wheel things, a big one and a small one. And when they wheeled in, the whole audience laughs. I mean, you know, we're using automobiles to incite gags and it was really fun. George, so, awesome. so a couple years ago, uh, I got to moderate uh, a panel with Brian Gosling and Harrison Ford to debut the trailer for Blade Runner 2049. So I was so excited, before the Q&A, I showed them my driver's license. I said, what do you think of this? And they're like, what are you, what, what are you talking about? I said, look when my driver's license expires. <laughs> Amazing. November 2049. I said, what do you think? And Harrison Ford goes, that's why you're moderating today. Yeah. <laughs> you got that's also points. why you need treatment. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I, you know, the, the collaboration with Denis, because, because Blade Runner has become so sacred, it is widely regarded, maybe even more than 2001 A Space Odyssey, as, as the most influential science fiction movie of all time. Um, so there's, there's definitely a, a big, like... Big pressure, yeah. Yeah, a little bit. So <laughs> what, what kind of uh, collaboration did you have with, with Denis and, and maybe even Ridley Scott to keep the, the look of, of, of Blade Runner with the spinners, but, but, you know, obviously make them look more advanced? Yeah, well, for, I mean, well, Ridley was the grandfather of, 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 of the show, of course. He wanted to, from what I've read, you know, um, that he's, he tried to, you know, let it be Denise film, of course, right? Um, and I'll start off by saying, you know, I was, uh, I worked on the, kind of like the early Dreamers crew, and there was uh, certainly a team that uh, I do not take responsibility for. <laughs> it's a, movies are collaborations, of course. Um, but I'll just say when I, uh, when I, you know, I first got the call for Blade Runner 2049, I was literally, I had no, I, I mean, I think, I guess I knew it was being in development, it's been in development for a while, but I was literally on a lunch break and just sketching spinners on a napkin. And, and I got this call and, uh, um, from the production designer. I was like, oh, I've got something exciting to work on. And, <laughs> I, and when he told me what it was, I was, I, you know, I was like, no effing way. No, and I just kept swearing at him over and over again because I couldn't believe it <laughs> yeah, yeah. that I was, uh, this was kind of coming together. Um, and uh, jumping off of what you're saying about, about um, directors and working with production designers, you know, they really do just give key words sometimes. I mean, and they leave it to you. I kind of feel like hiring a, a designer is kind of like hiring an, an actor, where you need to be cast in the right role. And you, you hire someone. If you hired Ryan Gosling, you don't tell him how to act. You just do your thing and, um, you know, see if he gets there. And it's sort of the same thing I feel like with designers. They give you some key words, and a lot of times you're just left alone. And you don't get a whole lot more. You don't get a whole lot, lot you know, uh, much else. Um, so it's exciting, yeah. I, I would love to open up to the audience if you, if you have questions, but I do have one more question for, for Bob Gale, and that is the way the DeLorean, the time machine, evolved from the first movie to the second movie to the third. And, and specifically, when I was watching Back to the Future Part Three in June of 1990, and Marty made it through back to 1985 across Eastwood Ravine, and the train was coming, and he hopped out of the car at the last minute, and the DeLorean smashed to smithereens, blown to bits. My heart sunk. 
then we did our job. <laughs> yeah, you were supposed nice. to feel that way. Because the, the car by three movies was really a character. Uh, people loved that car. Nobody thought we would do that. Uh, uh, and then, of course, we topped it by having Doc return in the train, yeah. which is in its own way as cooler, cooler than, than the DeLorean. Sure, yeah. But everything that we did with the DeLorean was connected to the character and to the story. The, you know, what, what these guys were saying about how do you approach the characters with their cars, we said, okay, Doc Brown built this thing in his garage. He's not gonna be able to have finely machined, you know, clean looking lines. He did this with his home equipment, uh, with soldering irons, with, you know, sledgehammers, whatever he had. And when you see that DeLorean for the first time, you say it looks really cool, but you also say, God, this didn't come out of some showroom. This came out of this guy's garage. You believe it, the wires are hanging off it. And if you've ever tinkered yourself on any project, whether it be a car or anything else, you know that when you're trying to get something to work, you don't care what it looks like. At the, you wanna make sure the damn thing works. If it works, then okay, now we'll clean it up. We'll clean up the wires, you know, my wife's saying, Bob, why are all these wires and pieces laying? I'll clean them up later. I want to make sure, you want to make sure that the damn thing works. So Doc Brown wanted to make sure that it worked. And so it's got all this stuff hanging off it. Everything about it was designed with the story in mind. It was nuclear powered. So we said, well, how, we, we said to our guys, how, how would he have a nuclear reactor on this car? And those big vents, those big exhaust things that are on the back, they look really cool and they look wicked, like the car could go a million miles per hour. It's a DeLorean, it can't go <laughs> anywhere. Um, <laughs> but those were akin to the cooling towers that you would have in a nuclear power plant. And after the first time travel experiment, all that uh, exhaust comes out of them, just like you vent a nuclear reaction. So then we said, okay, plutonium, that's a pain in the ass. Let's uh, make a positive future here, and we want to have the car fly away at the end. Uh, and again, stuff that you see when you're a kid. I was nine years old. The PBS station in St. Louis, Missouri, ran a documentary about the wonderful world of 1985, uh, 25 years in the future, and they predicted that we would have flying cars in 1985. So I did my part to make that prediction come true. Um, so we, we, we switched that out with, with Mr. Fusion, and then we didn't have to worry about how the time part of it, the time circuits were powered, but then when we bring it back into the Old West, yeah. then again, we're just thinking about what could they do, what would happen, what would really happen, uh, if Doc was going to store this car in a cave like he does, uh, and we had the tires all rotted, rotted away, um, and people say, well, why didn't he just get the gasoline that was in that, in that car that he hit in the cave? Well, anybody that knows anything about cars, if you're going to put a car in storage for 
months or a year, you drain all the fluids out of it. So Doc would have done that. So everything was calculated and thought through to say this is this is the logic of it. And part of what makes any of these great movies great, what gives them their lasting viewability is when there's a logic to them and you can say, okay, yeah, I get that. That actually makes sense. It makes sense that he would do that. It would make sense that the car would do that. It would make sense that he would really care about that car or that he wouldn't care about that car. Well, by the way, uh, the wires and the duct tape and the whole thing, that's every movie car. <laughs> Everybody agree on that? Yeah. It's a lot easier to take them out today than it was when we did those movies back in the 80s. You know, uh, two little things about this. One, I got a call from a wonderful guy named Mike Fink. They had these drawings from Ron Cobb and Andy Probert. I was going to ask what, about that. What the car should look like, right? And uh, Mike Fink was finding parts f to make the car look sort of like the drawings because there wasn't time to make blueprints or to, you know, scratch build those parts, anything like that. And so he said, uh, Mike, you know, you went to airplane school and you love to build stuff and because uh, I thought I was going to build airplanes because, of course, how could I possibly earn a living drawing pictures? That's crazy. Uh, so, so he said, you know, you know about this stuff. Why don't you go make nice with the art department and you could take over my job for me, maybe, please, because I have an offer on another show. So I went over to Taco Bell, which is what we call Amblin, on the Universal lot. And I went to a nice interview with the production designer and the art director, and I had a, you know, a portfolio of stuff with me. And I'm walking out, and I realize it's a long way to the Lancashire Gate. And here's this guy getting into this cool old car, and I knock on the window and I say, you're not headed over to the Lancashire Gate, are you? He says, yeah, I can give you a ride. And he says, well, what are you here for? We're driving along. I said, oh, I'm here for an interview uh, for this Back to the Future thing. He said, oh, really? I said, yeah, well, um, you know, I did some car stuff and I like to make stuff and I like to draw pictures and I try to draw what I know we can build in the time that we have. He says, oh, well, that's, that sounds good. So what kind of shows have you worked on? And I said, well, I did this Knight Rider thing a couple years ago. <laughs> and he goes sort of white because it's Bob Gale driving me to the Lancashire Gate. And he says, you know, uh, Back to the Future is really different than Knight Rider. <laughs> and I hope after 25 years it turned out okay. Uh, I hope it turned out okay. But really, as a designer, that's what you're trying to do. If it's a crazy guy in his garage, you're gonna put it together with pop rivets and duct tape, right? If it's a big corporation, you'll, des you'll design it that way. And the, the other thing I wanna say is, when we knew originally part two and part three were one movie yeah, because right. and then it got rather expensive so it became kind of two movies at least that's my understanding that's of it yeah and so it's like wait they're gonna smash the deloreans it's not so good um and the silver lining to that was well doc brown's gonna fly away in this train so then you get to draw doc brown's flying train so 27 people in the art department we had lots of ideas for the flying train um, but it's a thrill to be part of something like that. And whoever knew that this, any of this would happen? Whoever knew, right? It yeah, absolutely. turned out okay. Who's got a question? Yes, you, sir. Um, oh, hi. Hi. Uh, yeah, so someone? Okay. Uh, just one comment. I thought that the Mr. Fusion thing was the greatest car gag 
ever. I, I think Thank that's you. what we all remember. Um, you guys touched on product placement, and I wonder if how much uh, action there was behind the product placement, of the car placement in Avengers Endgame, and what, it, what it, and if anybody has a sense of how much Audi actually paid in the end. Hmm. I, I worked on that movie, but uh, that answer I don't have. Sorry. <laughs> it's less than you think in terms of raw cash. You know, they, they ask now companies to pay for premieres. They ask them for print and ad money. There's a lot of barter that goes back and forth. The, the, the raw cash deals are not there the way they used to be. We went through a period of time when there was a lot of that. They provide different things from the movies. They help costs. And then it's about a co-marketing campaign is a very different thing. That's product integration. And a co-marketing campaign costs millions of dollars because they're going to tie it into advertising. And that's what the studio is looking for. Production's looking for saving money on the production, which means, yes, pay for our premiere. Yes, pay. It's, it's little things, but it adds up. But it's also enough that people like me don't get hired. Um, I worked on the first Iron Man, and I think that was also the first of the whole Marvel thing uh, going the first off one. after that. Yeah, yeah so, and uh, I was designing the car for Stark that he had built himself, and it was very similar to the mask and the suit and everything. I worked on it for like four months, and at some point I get the call to the big office, and they go, so, how much is that going to cost? And uh, if it's not if it's similar to what a set cost or you know if the character or the whole storyline doesn't really grant you building a car for a million dollars then you're out you know so um, and then next day they told me that Audi moved in and gave a certain amount of money and then you know hmm. left me walking away You'll never drive an Audi again <laughs> you won't even rent one at the airport hey have you guys have you guys ever had uh, uh, Consultations or interference or anything with the toy companies that want to that want to make the toys of these um, cars. I've worked with Hasbro a lot, and yeah. uh, they usually just want something as soon as possible, and so uh, there's no interaction that way. They really just want to see as quickly as possible what was going to be in the movie, and then they take it from there. And Mattel is extremely active right now. They've sort of come back into the game. And they are doing a, uh, well, uh, the Hot Wheels events. They, if you saw last year, they're doing it again this year. It's 15 cities. So they go to a Walmart in Indiana, Pennsylvania, and you're encouraged to bring your car. And there's one winner from each city. And then they bring those 15 cars to the SEMA show in Las Vegas, which is a aftermarket show. It's huge. And then they pick one car to build. And now they've taken that program and they've funded it with a lot of sponsors, some big sponsors. So now Mattel wants to also get in, they, they, they want to turn something into a movie there. So they're kicking that around. So to answer your question, they are really getting active. Wow. Uh, got time for, yeah, here. Uh, my question is for Dennis. Uh, I've been a big fan of the Fast and Furious films for a while. I actually know a guy who was a tech advisor in the first two. I know that there's a multitude of different types of cars involved. It's not just muscle cars, it's not just European cars. And if car guys know anything, it's that each brand or OEM, they kind of, or each model even specifically, have their own little quirks. What were some of the weirdest quirks or annoyances that you've had trying to work with like the Lamborghinis or 
Fiat's or any of the other like random rare cars that you uh, put into the films? Uh, well, that's that's a long list because all cars have a, <laughs> all, all movie cars definitely have uh, some type of a quirk. Um, you know, typically they're built in a rush, and you know, if it's something that's scratch built, so we're dealing with that. If it's a production car, uh, I mean, we just worked with the Lamborghini Murcielago on eight, uh, awesome car, but we're using it in, a, in a, an environment that it shouldn't be, and we're on ice with two inches of water, and uh, we bought manual transmission cars just because it was either easier to disable the traction control and ABS. And we went through clutches like crazy, you know. I mean, not no blame of the car, but just the way it was being abused. And that was a, I guess it was more than a quirk because I had to fly a guy from London with about five clutches that was a Lamborghini Tech to, uh, you know, change the first one and teach my guys how to do it. But it, it went great. Um, I guess one of my bigger, you know, I guess I'll say a headache nowadays is with modern cars uh, because, uh, for instance, like Black Panther is an excellent example. Um, Lexus gave us these amazing cars, but these cars are made to do everything uh, that's not a car stunt. You know, no tires sliding, they don't burn out, they don't. So, you know, and of course you get a director that says, hey, I just want the car to, you know, come in and slide and do a 180. Well, the car doesn't have a handbrake, it doesn't have anything. So you try to put a slide brake in the car, and the car is so smart it won't let you do that. You just, you know, the car just absolutely shuts down. And uh, I've learned now when I do these jobs, uh, I asked for a computer programmer and Lexus, you know, obliged. They sent a guy, a guy named Gary Yamada that came out and uh, he went to South Korea. Was Everywhere the cars went, he went. And those cars would, uh, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with like limp mode. The car is unhappy with something you've done. Then it just says, I'll idle back, but that's all I'm gonna do. So, you know, we would flag him over, he'd get his laptop, he'd, you know, dial it in. And like I said, we did, as usual, we do horrible things to cars. You know, we're pulling out wiring, we're pulling out seats to make room for a camera. And like I said, with modern cars, uh, you know, you can pull a headlight bulb out and the car won't run. You, you know, so... Uh, and be honest, Dennis, you've uh, you know, pulled probably more... Probably one of my, my biggest challenges. He's pulled more European motors out of cars and put Chevy crate engines in them than anybody in this business right that's, here. Yeah, He's that's the sure for fix. That. Yeah, if I, if I, if sure I get fix. frustrated, yeah, we just throw an LS Chevy motor in it and yeah. that solves the problem. And he could but, give you uh, a list of cars that he's done and it, it works really well. Um, angers, I got a lot of hate mail over on, that stuff. Uh, yes, <laughs> on Baby Driver, they had... Um, a huge uh, S-Class Mercedes, and they were doing the chase right. in the garage, and they couldn't disable that all those systems. And it's tough. Somebody flew o over from Germany because it just kept not working. And that, and that's really what it takes nowadays. You're not yeah. going to get, you know, your down the street mechanics to disable these features on cars nowadays. You have to have some from the factory. ECMs are coded. You have to have. It's like I said. It's uh, it's like you're make, breaking into a military uh, grade computer nowadays. <laughs> Got time for one more question. If the, uh, there it is. Uh, my question is, can you guys give any examples of OEM designers uh, who are inspired by a something uh, in a movie or a TV show, car, uh, when they were growing up that ended up making it into production? Any examples you guys can think of? Let's see, an OE car that was designed that ended up in the movie? No, no, no. Someone, someone was no. inspired by a movie and then you know put some sort of a little design or some sort of... Uh, aspect of the car into production. I'm sure that happens a lot, but I can't think of any specific I'm example, but I'm sure that's common. Trying to think of it, I would say probably the closest thing is the Mustang team has been very uh, influenced by the movies. And there's a great documentary called A Faster Horse. If you ever get a chance to watch A Faster Horse, it's the whole story of the development of the Mustang. A lot of those guys bring up movie references constantly because the Mustang, by the way, is the number one brand that appears in a movie out of all of them, yeah, by far. 
So I, I think they have always been influenced by that. Last question. This was brought up from Josh before, but has any actors of yours in your movies ever been able to give you their input on what kind of car to use or how to use it? I get that uh, all too often. Mike, the Mike, question is, do you really want to know, do we ever listen to them? <laughs> exactly. Mike Myers no. uh, was just an actor. That was a very small movie. Austin Powers 1 was very small. He had the, the Corgi model of an XKE, and he wanted an XKE. And the problem was, we didn't have any money. And I was scouring around for a right-hand drive car, and they, they were rusty, or I couldn't find them. I finally found a guy with a kit in Newport Beach, and we transferred a left hand to a right-hand drive car, and the guy loved Mike Myers, so he painted the car at a big discount. It's the only reason we got that car, and we never doubled it, because we didn't have the money. We put it all into one car. And so he had a big influence. They wanted to make him happy. A great conversation with Bob Gale, Dennis McCarthy, Howard Belker, Josh Hancock, George Hall, Michael Schaff, and Scott Mance. Make sure you check out the Hollywood Dream Machines exhibit at the Peterson Museum in Los Angeles. For more information, go to peterson.org. And don't forget, subscribe to our podcast at radio.com, Apple Podcasts, and canx1070.com, among other places. So that way you can be notified when a new Talking About Cars is uploaded and you won't miss a thing. And if you're on iTunes, as long as it's still around, please rate us and also write us a review. Looking for more background to our episodes? Go to our website, talkingaboutcars.net. Until next time, I'm Randy Cardoon. Join me as we have some fun talking about cars.